Hey everybody, you are tuned to Deep Dive, the All Music Books podcast, where we talk to authors of music books, bios, histories, and criticism. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is Doug Broad, who wrote a book called They Just Seem a Little Weird, How Kiss, Cheap Trick, Aerosmith, and Stars Remade Rock and Roll. Welcome, Doug. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, your book is is a hoot. It's a lot of fun, especially if you grew up with these bands, as a lot of us this age did. The subtitle of your book is How Kiss, Cheap Trick, Aerosmith, and Stars Remade Rock and Roll, and it very neatly sums up the story. I'm curious, what set you down this path, and why did you want to tell these stories? Well, I was always a fan of 70s rock. I mean, I grew up with it. Kiss was the first band I ever loved. I started listening to Kiss when I was around 11, so I was there really early. And Cheap Trick has always been my favorite band of all time. And I knew they had a connection. You know, Cheap Trick opened for Kiss in 77, and it was the first time they got major exposure in the United States. And obviously Aerosmith was circling around that period as well, and they had some deep connections to Kiss and Cheap Trick. Stars was another band from that era who I actually never heard until much later on. I always knew they existed, but talking with a lot of friends of mine who were into music, they always sort of put Stars and Cheap Trick and Kiss in this same kind of orbit. So when I decided to write a book about 70s rock, I thought that, you know, including all four of these bands and talking about their connections might be an interesting way to approach it. And the chief kind of uh, jumping off point for the book was Gene Simmons' 1978 solo album on which members of the other three bands appear. One of the really interesting things, as you mentioned, is how often these bands' paths crossed and how they intersected on so many levels. You know, we'll get into that, but the music scene in the early to mid-70s was like Led Zeppelin, The Stones, and Black Sabbath on one hand, Alice Cooper and The Dolls on the other, and punk yet was still yet to germinate, and in come these bands. As you said, you know, at that point, bands like Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath and Deep Purple were kind of ruling the roost, and they were very serious bands. There wasn't a lot of fun on stage. They weren't very theatrical. But then, you know, Kiss took a little bit of what the New York Dolls were doing, a little bit of what Alice Cooper were doing, and they sort of created a whole new kind of show. You know, Cheap Trick, in their own way, are very theatrical and flamboyant and humorous on stage. And it could be argued that a band like Aerosmith sort of took the concept of the rock star to the nth degree and just put everything on stage that they could and they dressed the part, they moved like rock stars. So they almost were like an exaggeration of that kind of concept. Stars similarly took a lot of what the glam guys were doing, a lot of what Kiss were doing. They had a choreographed show. So they were also into sort of the theatrical rock experience. And I thought these four bands kind of represented a very small part of what was going on in rock, but it was an integral part because it was, you know, it was made up of bands that were actually trying to, to put on a show. I mean, you could put bands like The Tubes in that category, Sparks as well, but The Tubes and Sparks never really had mainstream success the way these other bands did. 
Yeah, Kiss was a really big one for me as well. And, you know, I have to say, if we break these bands down, they were probably the first of these four for me as well. And certainly the most unique and groundbreaking visually. And that first cover was just astonishing. I mean, I think we all got used to the makeup, but when you see the first one, you know, in context, it was amazing. That was one thing that Kiss, if they did anything at all, they created the rock and roll brand. I mean, their branding was spectacular. In an era where bands weren't really brands at that point, Kiss, Gene Simmons in particular, was inspired by comic books. So the whole visual aspect really appealed to him. The makeup was really important. You know, they had a great logo that Ace Frehley and Paul Stanley designed. That went a long way to bringing in people who maybe were not sure of the music to begin with. I mean, my attraction to Kiss very early on, that first record, was primarily the visual. I saw them for the first time on a the Mike Douglas show in the New York area. You know, when I saw Gene Simmons in that outfit, I was like, this is it for me, because I was a sci-fi, horror, comic book kind of nerdy guy. So that visual spoke to me. The music was secondary, you know, chronologically, but, you know, the music was really important because it was simple, it was blunt, it was fun, the riffs were really catchy, the songs had great choruses, I loved the anthems. They were really smart guys to sort of push the visual and the graphic element of the group. I remember that Mike Douglas interview, and if you weren't into the band because of the makeup before that and you saw that, seeing him sitting there next to Mike Douglas, is I can still see that interview in my head and how odd it looked and how as a kid you were just loving it, you know? It's like, wow. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of my favorite quotes in your book, and there's a ton of them, but one of them, and it's featured on the back, is you describe Kiss as, quote, smart guys writing dumb songs for smart people. You got to explain that. Well... You know, I think everybody who listens to Kiss and and likes Kiss admits that sometimes their songs are really stupid. And even the band themselves admit it. I mean, a lot of it is very lowest common denominator. They sing about their genitals a lot, especially Gene Simmons. They talk a lot about sex and debauchery and being on the road as a rock band. You know, drinking alcohol, old gin is one of their, their famous early songs. There is a, an element of just Neanderthal, there's an Neanderthal quality to a lot of their music. On the other hand, you know, it's sophisticated in, in its simplicity. You know, I, I spoke with a lot of artists who came later, you know, in the 80s and 90s, who were inspired by Kiss. And Kiss really inspired these guys because their music was so simple to play. It was kind of obvious and the riffs were simple. They didn't have to be... Steve Vai or Joe Satriani to learn how to play these songs. And for a kid getting into music, it was a brilliant concept. It showed these kids that you don't need to have this technical aptitude to just go out and start your own rock band. And in a way, you know, that inspiration was a brilliant idea that that these guys were able to inspire people just because their music was so simple. Now, do you think that, and I agree with you, and your book is loaded with very famous musicians who said, this This is why, this was my entry point to deciding I want to be a musician. Do you think they were aware of that simplicity and exploited it? Or was that just, you know, kind of a, you know, lucky break or just who they were? I, I think they were aware of it. I think, I, I think even as a kid, even when I was 
10 years old and I heard Kiss. I also loved Elton John at the time. And I knew as a 10-year-old, maybe I'm sophisticated, <laughs> I don't know, but I knew as a 10-year-old that that Elton John's music was a lot more sophisticated and adult and maybe more complicated, just in terms of what he was saying. The, the lyrics were, were much more poetic, and I didn't quite understand them, but I loved the music. And, you know, you, you balance that, at least for me, you balance that next to Kiss. Kiss was talking to me. Kiss was like talking... Not that they were talking down, but they weren't talking over their audience at all. So I think as a youngster, you're you're sometimes able to delineate what is complicated and adult and what sounds like it's made for kids. And despite the kind of grubbiness and grunginess of a lot of their themes, you know, Kiss's music at the start, you know, it was made for kids. Hmm. Yeah, and you know, exploring your book, I didn't realize there's definitely some debauchery in in those lyrics that I didn't quite get when I was a kid. Now reading it, I'm like, whoa. But I don't know if this is a similar tale with you, but there was definitely a faction of kids that I grew up with that loved kids, but there was a faction that hated them too. And that, you know, you're running out of school, you know, <laughs> I'm curious if that was a similar thing where you bonded with a group. Yeah. You know, that's, that's the one thing that all KISS fans that, that they're linked by is, you know, to be a KISS fan, at least back in the seventies um, and sometimes in the eighties, you had to defend yourself. You had to defend your band because aside from the people who are really into them, they didn't get any respect from a lot of music fans. I mean, I went to a high school and I was one of two KISS fans. Everyone else was into, you know, Zeppelin yep. and the Allman Brothers and the Grateful Dead. And, you know, KISS were somehow, you know, they were somehow seen as inauthentic and, you know, showy and just silly and not music. And, you know, if you were if you were in the know and you were a fan of KISS, you know, you had to learn to, um, you know, to take it on the chin and, 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 you know, make a good defense for yourself and for your band. Somehow that makes it more satisfying when you see all the kids that you knew hated the band and they're pumping their fists to their anthems in sporting arenas these days, you know. So one of the first, or a famous, and maybe infamous is a better word, but Bill Coin, I think I'm saying that right, saw mm-hmm. one of their first gigs in 1973, and he instantly signed on. And he would have enormous effect, not just on KISS, but on the, this whole new scene of bands in your book, right? Yeah, so Bill O'Coin, um was originally a TV director. Gene Simmons pursued him because he liked the show that Bill was producing and directing called Flipside. It was a, a music TV show where they basically just shot bands in the studio performing. And it was really good. They had, they had some great acts like the Raspberries and Edgar Winner and Rick Derringer and John and Yoko. And um, he pursued Bill O'Coin and O'Coin went to see him, got him a deal with the Casablanca Records. And then, you know, made him into stars, essentially, with Kiss Alive. Um, that album really put him over. It took a couple of years, but it did. And then Bill signed Stars, which were a, a newer band um, out of New York and New Jersey. From there, he signed a whole bunch of artists. He had Piper, which was one of Billy Squire's early bands. He had a band called New England that Paul Stanley produced. He had Toby Bow which um, they had a huge hit with My Angel Baby. It was kind of a soft rock song in the 70s. And, you know, then he struck it big later on in his career with Billy Idol when Billy Idol went solo. 
So yeah, Bill had a pretty big effect on the music at the time. I think, you know, he had such leverage with Kiss becoming huge stars that he was able to parlay that leverage on his smaller acts and, you know, make some of them at least relatively successful. Yeah. And, and, you know, we'll talk later about it, but he kind of used, I did not know the Billy Idol connection, but that makes a ton of sense because it was, you know, I don't want to say image first, but certainly image at the same time as music. And that I think is a continuum through all of those bands. Absolutely. And, and it's, it's one thing that actually frustrated Paul Stanley and he was very, he's been very vocal about it. The sense or the idea that uh, Bill was signing these bands and he would like just give them a cool logo and give them costumes and they could be just like Kiss. He said, well, no, we're Kiss and they're not just like us. So I think in a way it was a little bit of frustration. I think at some point Kiss thought that Bill was taking his eye off the ball and his eye off of Kiss and had it wandering a little bit. So yeah, so I think there was a sense of competition and a little sense of frustration there. We're speaking with Doug Broad, the author of They Just Seem a Little Weird, How Kiss, Cheap Trick, Aerosmith, and Stars Remade Rock and Roll. So, you know, we're in Boston, so I think we got to talk Aerosmith next. And, and they formed in 70. Their debut album was also in 73, and it stiffed. But then management went and demanded or asked, I guess, for a single to be released. And that was a game changer. Yeah, you know, the record didn't sell very well. It was released the same day as Bruce Springsteen's first album by the same company, and they were kind of overshadowed. And also the record, looking back, is probably their worst, or one of the worst. You know, it has Dream On, which became their first hit. But when the record first came out, it, it didn't sell much. Their managers insisted that the label, Columbia, release Dream On as a single, and they did, and it was fairly successful. It wasn't super successful, but it, you know, saved them because Columbia decided to pick up the option for a second album. And then when the second record came out, they re-released Dream On, and it became a much bigger hit. So, yeah, that song kind of had a life past the first album, but really, you know, helped make the band hugely successful. So a lot of people saw... Aerosmith is kind of a, an American version of Rolling Stone's Light. Um, and maybe that was due to the production of the first album. I still like a lot of those songs the best, but the production is, is kind of weak. But their second album in 1974 is much harder, and it was largely due to their new producer, who would figure into the lives of many of these bands. Yeah, so Jack Douglas came in for the second album, Get Your Wings. He was a kind of a protege of Bob Ezrin, who was the executive producer. And Bob had produced all the great Alice Cooper records, and Jack helped him with a few of those. So Jack Douglas produced some of the greatest Aerosmith records from early on. He did Rocks, he did Toys in the Attic, he did Draw the Line. But he also um, produced the first Cheap Trick album, and he also produced the first two Stars albums. So he was kind of an essential part of this whole nexus of these bands. He did not, however, ever produce Kiss, although he was almost drafted to produce Kiss. After Kiss released Destroyer, they got 
kind of cold feet because it was an album that sort of took them out of their comfort zone. It had a lot of heavy orchestration. It had a boys chorus on it. He had calliopes. I mean, it just was this heavily ornate record. They were afraid it wouldn't get a good response from their diehards. So they had approached Jack Douglas to produce the follow-up to Destroyer, basically going over the head of Bob Ezrin and not letting Bob Ezrin know that he they were approaching his protege, so to speak. Ezrin was not happy about it. Jack Douglas didn't consider doing it because he was already you know, heavily involved in Aerosmith, and he thought that it would be kind of a betrayal to work with you know, Aerosmith's biggest competition at the time. So that never came to fruition, and Jack Douglas never worked with Kiss. He's he's an interesting part of this whole story. Yeah, it is. And you mentioned them, but Rockford, Illinois, is the birthplace of exactly one band in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Isn't that right? It is. Cheap trick. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Your favorite of the bunch. And I saw them on a co-bill with ACDC with Bon Scott, which was another legendary show. Interesting, because... Cheap Trick seemingly bought into the visual aspect that Kiss had, but in a, a very different way. And the other side of the coin, you know, and rather than the Kiss thing, they had two kind of goofballs, you know, uh, Rick and Bunny Carlos, and then two heartthrobs. They were very specific about their visual presentation as well. I mean, Rick is always wearing a cap, and he's wearing a cap essentially because I think he was he was going bald very early. And he decided to wear a cap to uh, disguise that fact. But he also had a very kind of demonstrably humorous face. And he played that up in concert. And he bears a striking resemblance to um, Satch from the Bowery Boys. So he played that up as well. He also would wear these outlandish checkerboard outfits and skinny black jeans with wrestling shoes and he just had a really interesting presentation on stage and he would fly around like a whirling dervish. Um, and then you had Bunny Carlos in the back looking like a, an accountant or a science teacher with a, the Salvation Army shirts and the skinny ties and a vest. And then you had Robin and Tom who were just these kind of gorgeous, you know, pinup guys dressed in their 70s bell-bottom finery. They were just a striking visual presentation. It always struck me as very interesting. I mean, I, I saw Cheap Trick starting in 1980, you know, I've, and I've seen them, I think, 50, 51 wow. times since then. You know, despite Robin Zander being the singer, I always considered Rick Nielsen the front man of that band because he's the one you can't take your eyes off of. I mean, Robin is to my mind, the best singer in rock and roll, but you're watching Rick and watching what Rick is doing, which is, which is a, I don't think any other band can, can, um, can claim that. Of course, your girlfriend was watching Robin and Tom, but <laughs> um, it's interesting. You talked about branding too, and, and especially with that dual personality. Uh, you know, I've art directed a few albums, and um, my favorite album is definitely In Color and In Black and White. That's just such an incredibly stark presentation of that dual personality. I, I love that record, and I could sit there and flip over the cover all the time because, you know, they I, I think they knew what they, somebody knew what they were doing with that album cover. I mean, the first album had all four guys on the cover in black and white, a very kind of noirish portrait. And then for the second album, they put Tom and, and Robin on front in color, straddling motorcycles, and you flip it. The back of the album is Rick Nielsen 
and Bunny Carlos on bicycles with the big banana saddles and the, the high handlebars. So, I mean, they looked silly. They were obviously playing off that odd dichotomy of these gorgeous rock star guys and these goofy guys on the back. And, you know, that was something that they played into throughout the career. Yeah, it's a brilliant album cover. And and you mentioned this, you know, with Kiss and and certainly Aerosmith had it and Cheap Trick had it, but they, they all had fantastic logos too, you know. And you talk about the branding and the marketability that came later on. You know, after a while, you see that and you know exactly who it is. Yeah, that was a really smart thing that these 70s bands started to do. I think Kiss might have been the first one that really had this basic, easy-to-copy logo. But then everyone kind of jumped on that train. You know, ACDC had an easy one that you can draw on your school book. And I think that was one of the rites of passage when you were a kid is that you would, you know, would draw all these logos on your school book or carve them into your desk. So yeah, so it was a really smart idea to come up with these really interesting looking logos. I mean, Cheap Trick had a very basic kind of smudged typewriter font logo that's instantly recognizable and has been copied and parodied numerous times by other bands. Aerosmith's logo is a little more ornate. It's kind of evolved over time. And Stars just had a terrific logo that was designed by this guy named Michael Dorrett, who um, actually designed a very famous movie poster, a movie called Zardoz with Sean Connery. And he also did a lot of work with Kiss. He designed the Rock and Roll Over cover. And yeah, he's done a bunch of really spectacular work. Hmm. So you mentioned the wild card. I'm going to take a guess. The majority of folks are going to say, who the heck are stars? And how do they fit in with these other three bands that I know and love? And you'll tell them what? Well, first of all, I mean, the reason they're in the book is because they were just an organic fit when you're writing about the three other bands, they had such intense connections. I mean, they had Jack Douglas, who produced two of the other bands. They opened for Aerosmith extensively in the 70s. They shared management with Kiss. Their songs were actually more reminiscent of Cheap Trick style, you know, poppy hard rock songs. And some of their lyrics were kind of on a par with Rick Nielsen's. They were very bizarre, very dark, you know, sardonic, not very upbeat. So th they shared a lot of DNA with these other bands. And, you know, they were the second band under Bill O'Coin's management. They just, to me, really kind of fit into this, this foursome. And one of the main reasons I included them in the book is something that always made me curious. You know, there were always this level of band in the 70s that never quite made it. They were always like a C or B level band. You know, you had Stars, you had Angel, you had Montrose, Head East. But there were all these American bands around at the time that never really got to the next level. They were always, you know, playing theaters and they were always opening acts. They were never headliners in arenas. So I wanted to explore why, like why Stars with all the opportunities that they had and all the similarities to these other bands, why weren't they able to make that leap? And you argue, or maybe I'm wrong there, but between them and Cheap Trick, they're the, perhaps the best musicians of the lot. I would say with these bands, it's funny, Rick Nielsen would never say that he's a virtuoso. And a lot of the people I interviewed said he doesn't need to be a virtuoso to be a rock guitar god. 
because he, he breaks everything down to its essentials and doesn't overplay and just, you know, he's, he's not perfect. He's sometimes very sloppy when you see them live, but it doesn't matter because it's, he's looking for an overall sound. On the other hand, precision-wise, Tom Peterson and Bunny Carlos in Cheap Trick are just tremendous musicians. And stars were an interesting case because they essentially came from two other bands. You know, stars started actually as Looking Glass, and Looking Glass had a huge hit in 72 with Brandy or a Fine Girl. Two of the band members from stars were in Looking Glass. Over time, two more stars band members appeared in Looking Glass. Then the band morphed into another band called Fallen Angels. Fallen Angels recorded an album for Arista in 75 that went unreleased. It was shelved, but then they got a new guitarist, Richie Rano, and Richie Rano came from Stories, who had a huge hit with Brother Louie. So these guys were well-seasoned performers with some hits behind them. When they started off as stars, they were like seasoned, great musicians, and they never got a chance or they, they were never forced to play clubs and bars. They went straight to being an opening act in theaters and arenas for really big artists. So that was one thing that stars had that these other bands didn't have that was actually kind of detrimental to them. They never had that grassroots following because they were just immediately put on these huge bills with big bands. It's interesting because I think a lot of these bands changed opening spots. And uh, in your book, Joe Perry noted after opening for Kiss, the audience reaction, he said, quote, that wasn't about music at all. And I know Tom Hamilton also, he had a great line about his thoughts of opening up for Kiss. Uh, I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, Tom said, it felt like we were going on with our pants down. The impact of what Kiss was doing was undeniable even though I felt it was kind of corny. You know, that was something that a lot of bands who played with Kiss thought. But in particular, when Kiss and Aerosmith played two shows together in 74 with Kiss opening, Aerosmith admitted that they were intimidated by what Kiss were doing because it was so spectacular and it was so flamboyant that at one point Joe Perry said, do we have to dress like clowns to get noticed now? They were taken aback by how popular or how well-received Kiss's performance was. And he felt that compared to Aerosmith, Aerosmith were just like kind of lukewarm. Mm. And he also, he admired the simplicity of the music. Although later on, both he and Steven Tyler had a lot to say just critically about Kiss's music compared to Aerosmith's music. Mm. Well, it's funny, too, because um, later down the line when, you know, Kiss had morphed and they'd lost two of their members, they had new members. Uh, I think it was Joe Perry who, you know, kind of would downgrade Kiss and based on the wasn't their original personnel. So he would say, well, they're not really an opener for us because it's not really Kiss or something like that. Yeah. And in 2003, when they actually got it together to go on tour together, do a co-headlining tour. Aerosmith said that they would do it only if there were three original members of the band. At that point, Kiss were playing with only two original members, Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. So they had to draft Peter Chris back into the band, and Peter had left many years back. So Peter came in, Ace Freely decided to sit this out. He was 
pretty much done with Kiss at that point. You know, Eric Thoyer, who's a Sesson musician, I think it was on the, maybe the Gene Simmons solo record, but he said pretty bluntly, one of the things Kiss always had is this attitude that they're looked down upon, which they are, he says, by other musicians. That's pretty strong stuff. Do you think that's accurate? And did the, you know, did the other three bands in this book, you know, you've mentioned some of it before, but is, is that a fair quote? Yeah, Eric, Eric Troyer worked on um, Gene Simmons' solo album, and he actually also worked with Aerosmith um, doing backgrounds. He was one of uh, Jack Douglas's session favorites. Yeah, he, he was very blunt with me. He said that at that time, in 78, when he was making that record with Gene, you know, they weren't very well liked. And, and you know, a lot of musicians were suspicious of Kiss, much as a lot of music fans were. They thought it was style over substance. I think later on, a lot of artists were able to see what Kiss were doing and how substantial it really was. But back then, they were just such a novelty and so different that people just didn't know what to think. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. To just to rewind a bit, you know, we've been talking about how intertwined these guys are career-wise and fate-wise and certainly time-wise. Kiss blows up with Alive, really, and that's their fourth album. Uh, Aerosmith, Toys in the Attic is their third album. Cheap Trick with Heaven Tonight, which is their fourth album. But with Cheap Trick, what really put them over the top was the Live at Budokan album in 1978 that was leaked and bootlegged and never intended for U.S. release. Do I have that right? They had recorded some shows in Japan for the Japanese market, and it was never supposed to come out here, but the label had leaked a uh, an EP of some songs to radio stations, and it just caught on from there, and people started buying imports, and then Epic had no you know, choice than to release the album uh, domestically. And it was I Want You to Want Me, the song, that really sort of put them over and the one that really had got a lot of radio play. But at the same time, they had already recorded the follow-up to Heaven Tonight, which was Dream Police, and essentially had to sit on that record for nine months while the live album 
kind of played itself out. And by the time they released Dream Police, Bunny Carlos told me they were already kind of over it and kind of tired of it because they had done that record so long ago. They wanted to go on to the next thing, which kind of led to some stress within the band. And, you know, a year later, Tom Peterson, the bass player, was out. So, you know, that was a very, uh, it, it was time of their best success, their greatest success, but also it was a very contentious period and it, it ended up kind of putting a damper on their career. Yeah, and this is a time when labels would usually demand, you know, two records a year, you know, some, always one, but sometimes two records a year. So, you know, six months, you get a, a new record. Um, one thing about Cheap Trick I was surprised to learn, is, uh, Kiss was half teetotalers and half out-of-control partiers. Aerosmith was 100% out-of-control partiers, but it seems that Cheap Trick could hold their own with those guys. Um, you know, I, it's funny with Cheap Trick because there's not a lot known about them. Everyone knows about Peter Chris and Ace Freely and Steven Tyler and Joe Perry and their bad habits and their addictions, but you don't really know too much about Cheap Trick. And through my reporting, I interviewed Ken Stringfellow from the Posies, who told me that once when they'd come to a Posies recording session, they brought with them cases and cases of Heineken's. And he said he was shocked to see how much beer they brought with them. I don't think they were as out of control as the other bands we're talking about. But uh, yeah, I think they definitely liked some of what they were doing. Maybe it's the the hat turned up in the salesman shirt that led me to believe that they didn't do that. But uh, um, So I'll tell you this, you know, when I asked Bunny Carlos what he bought with his first big check, he said he, you know, he bought a car and he bought some pot. <laughs> There you go. We're speaking with Doug Broad. He's written a great little book called They Just Seem a Little Weird. It's a super fun time. How Kiss, Cheap Trick, Aerosmith, and Stars remade rock and roll. Let's talk about second careers for a minute because, you know, that's been something with most of these bands. But Kiss had a very obvious path when they unmasked. And they always had the opportunity to go back on tour with the masks on or reform with Ace and Peter or both. Yeah, so... The, the, the funny story about KISS is that they decided to take their mask off or their mask, their makeup off as soon as MTV hit. It was weird because they were already older than many of the bands that were becoming popular on MTV that they spawned. All these hair metal guys like Poison and Motley Crue. It was really strange to see these guys who are all in their mid-30s taking off the makeup and looking a little bit older mm. than the other bands that were coming up, and the makeup made them ageless. That was a very interesting part of Kiss's career, and you know they needed to do it, right. according to a lot of people I spoke with, because their career was so in the toilet at that point. It worked for them for a while. They never attained the heights of their early days, but then they put the makeup back on and took Ace and, and Peter out again in 96. And they had a huge uh, sort of second win then. Aerosmith had, I guess, for lack of a better word, a sobriety rebirth. And, you know, it worked well for them. I saw the Draw the Line tour, which is infamously perhaps their messiest, and it wasn't very good. You know, they, like Kiss, they brought in these song co-writers. And to me, it sort of betrayed their roots. But man, both of them had this this huge career uptick with those people. Yeah, it's funny. One thing that three bands, Cheap Trick, Kiss, and Aerosmith share is that they went outside to get songwriting help. 
And one person they all share is Diane Warren, who helped write songs for each of the three bands. In Aerosmith's case, you know, a, a lot of it had to do with them becoming sober and bringing in the right people. I mean, they brought in Desmond Child to work on Permanent Vacation. He co-wrote some of their biggest songs, like Dude Looks Like a Lady, Angel. And those were songs that really sort of put that album over. But he also worked with Kiss early on. He co-wrote I Was Made for Loving You. And then he wrote a bunch of songs when Kiss took off the makeup. But it's funny how he ended up with Aerosmith because at some point Bon Jovi were making Slippery When Wet. Uh, they had asked Paul Stanley to help with the songwriting. And Paul said, I, I don't want to do it, but I'm, I want to recommend Desmond Child to work with you. So Desmond worked with Bon Jovi on that record their record became huge, and that led to John Kalodner, who was A&R for Aerosmith, getting Desmond to work with Aerosmith. So I think it's kind of funny because when you really consider it, Paul Stanley was instrumental in Aerosmith's kind of resurrection later on. Hmm. Well, Cheap Trick seems to be on the road all the time still, uh, so they're they're still you know, doing their thing. I have to ask, um, is your book Stars' Rebirth? I would like to think so. I mean, one of the one of the goals, at least for this book, was to to shine light on this band that never really got a fair shake back in the day, who I, I really love. You know, and I've heard from some of the members of Stars, and it sounds like, you know, they're getting a little more attention and people are playing their stuff mm. more, which is nice. So yeah, if this if this leads to a little resurgence for Stars, I'd, I'd be very happy. Well, they've got the killer logo for merch, so, you know, they should get on that right away. <laughs> uh, lastly, we've talked about, you know, the interconnectivity of these bands, and I think, you know, you had said they really brought a great return to fun, particularly in the era that they came out of, which was sort of that beginning of what punk rock evolved out of, that bloated kind of stuff, and they brought fun, and probably a younger audience. So how would you assess their influence, both visually and musically, over what you say is such a wide berth of music styles that they influence hard rock, heavy metal, and even punk? Yeah, the, the funny thing about these four bands is that they not only inspired hair metal, which was that kind of very flamboyant, made up, kind of inauthentic, in your face kind of genre. And they also inspired grunge, which came next. And grunge was the more stripped down, quote unquote, more authentic kind of sound. You know, Cheap Trick especially and Aerosmith are worshipped by a lot of these bands. A lot of them cite Kiss as a huge influence, but a lot of people you sort of hop off the Kiss train at some point, and they still remain loyal to the band. They still mm -hmm. love the band, but they don't follow mm -hmm. them for a certain amount of time. I dropped off from Kiss for around 16 years, didn't really pay attention. And, you know, as much as they they have dropped off from Kiss, they still admire them, and, and Kiss set them on a path. That's a big deal for a lot of these artists. A lot of alternative guys, a lot of like alternative rock guys, uh, you know, The Replacements, Bob Mould, Billy Corgan, they also worship a lot of these bands as well. So it's interesting how these bands were able to spread their tentacles out into multiple genres. Yeah, and, you know, fun is, is a key part of it, especially when you're a kid and growing up. Yeah, I want to thank you for being on your book, 
They just seem a little weird how Kiss, Cheap Trick, Aerosmith, and Stars remade rock and roll is, is one of the more fun reads. So if that was, you know, not the the idea, or hopefully it was, it definitely came across in that way. It was just, it was such a fun read, and it took me back to, you know, what a period that, you know, really got me into music, that now that's what I do today. And uh, it was a great book, and I hope everyone out, out there will pick it up. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. All right, Doug, thank you very much. If you'd like to find out more about his book, please visit allmusicbooks.com, and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our Deep Dive episodes there. I'd like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. Finally, a big shout-out to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout this podcast. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all the major streaming services. Please support your local and independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning into Deep Dive, an all-music books podcast. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.